Heavenly Father, we thank you for your personal revelation in your word. Thank you that we are not cast adrift to wonder what it is that you would have us do or what you are like, for you have shared those things with us. Open our hearts and our ears to learn from that revelation today, we pray. Bless us and make us more like your son, Jesus. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. I'm sure it will come as a great surprise to you that we're in Revelation again this week and uh, we're doing the last of those seven churches. So if you could go to chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Self-reliance. The Collins English Dictionary gives us this definition. Self-reliance is the ability to do things and make decisions by yourself without needing other people to help you. That's a very popular idea. If you do a little internet search on the term, it will give you lots and lots of inspirational quotes. Here's just one. In American history, it's about hard work and self-reliance. It's not about collecting giveaways or being on unemployment forever. That the economy moves ahead for people who are going to work to realize the American dream, own a house, send your kids to college. I think it's the founding cornerstone of America. Well, that's great. That's exactly the encouragement we need to hear, isn't it? Work hard, count on your own muscle and intelligence, and guess what? You'll get ahead because everyone else will let you down because in the end, they are focused on their own issues. And that's just good, sound, everyday advice, isn't it? The kind that we might often offer to family and friends. Now, you probably don't know who this chap, Brian Zinke, is, the fellow who's responsible for that quote. And it seems that he's a very impressive man. He played college football. And in case you don't know, that's a really big deal in the States. He has not one, but two master's degrees. And he's an ex-Navy SEAL. And he's a successful businessman. And he's currently serving as the United States Secretary of the Interior in the Trump administration. So I reckon he'd know quite a lot about self-reliance. But must he be right because of all that experience? Here's another quote then from a man whose name you will more likely recognize and he has a quite different take on it though. The most dangerous thing in the world is the sin of self-reliance and the stupor of worldliness. <laughs> so who's right? Ryan Zinke or John Piper? I hope that by the end of today's sermon you will know the answer for sure. Let's read then Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. The lukewarm church. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, first off, we need to provide some background as we have so far. What do we know about this city, Laodicea? Well, interestingly, its name is made up from joining two words together. That means people and rule. So it means people ruling. And that's very appropriate for this letter, as we shall see, because the problem with this church is that they were living out that description and had put people rather than God as first in the church. They were self-reliant rather than God-reliant as they ought to be. As far as business was concerned, like many of the churches in this section, it was situated well in land and on an important trade route, and by the time John had written Revelation was already at least 300 years old. Situated in a turbulent part of the world, it had passed through several different conquerors' hands until coming under Roman control around about 133 BC. So by the time this letter was written, the Romans had been in charge for some some time. Apart from the obvious benefits of being on a trade route, Laodicea was particularly known for its black wool, the advancement of science and literature, and it also boasted a medical school. And aside from the obvious Gentile inhabitants, there was also a substantial Jewish community. Commentators have estimated that there were around 7,000 adult male Jews there, and they did that by working backwards from the amount of gold that was recorded as being sent back to Jerusalem as temple tax. That's an amazing thing, isn't it, that um, we can look back in history and somebody's written down that 2,000 years ago they sent back 20 kilos of gold. That's, That's the most interesting thing. So Laodicea was a bustling and wealthy place and one would have expected that there would have been a lot of opportunities for the word of the gospel to spread there. Sadly, as we read here, this is emphatically not the case because this church receives only condemnation from the Lord unlike the earlier six churches who at least received some praise. And perhaps this is why the city does not exist today except as a small and poor village with a different name. Okay, let's get to the text then. Just like this, uh, the letters we have previously read, this one begins uh, by Jesus identifying who he is and in common with those earlier letters, he uses the, these special names to show why he is qualified to make the accusations that he does. They stress his faithfulness and his authority. So here he starts with the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, everybody here is very familiar with the word Amen because we end every prayer with it and we generally understand it to mean it is so. And thus when we say it, we are agreeing with and supporting with the content of the prayer and we're saying that we trust God to deal with it according to his will. Absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Its Hebrew meaning is a little different but not so far away because it can be understood as truly or verily. So Jesus is reminding the hearer of this message that he is the very source and foundation of truth, the Amen with a capital A. 
There are no fuzzy edges to what he is saying, no possibility of being misquoted, and so the content must be taken most seriously. Next he uses this phrase, the faithful and true witness. He identifies himself in this way to remind the Laodiceans that it is exactly this that is lacking in their church, their witness and testimony to the world of their faith in a single, all-powerful, all-knowing and deeply loving creator and God. And this ought to remind us that this is our mission too. We are also here on earth as a witness and a sign pointing to the Lord, just as much as the Jews were in Old Testament times and as much as Laodicea was supposed to be. Too often our focus becomes overwhelmingly inward. We are caught up in ourselves, our sin or our good works or our salvation. What us? Whatever. It's us, 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 me, me, me. But it's supposed to be about him, him, him. Jesus, the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The last name he uses, which is the beginning of the creation of God, it can cause some problems if it's not understood correctly. There is a particular kind of theology known as Arian theology, and it's named after a fellow named Arius. That's a big surprise. And he lived from AD 256 to 336. He had a good motive. He was trying to protect the idea of monotheism, which is just a fancy way of saying that there is only one God. And he promoted that the idea, while Jesus is the Son of God, he is not God himself. He was made by God at some point in time, is distinct from the Father, and is therefore subordinate to him. And of course, this created a great deal of turmoil in the early church, over defining the doctrine of the Trinity because as much as there was this fellow Arius running around trying to deny it, there were a whole bunch of other folk like Athanasius who were running around doing just as much of a voluble attempt to champion it. And it was finally put to bed by the Nicene Council in AD 325 which gave us the well-known Nicene Creed. And in case you don't know what that is, I'm sure at some stage you will have repeated it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And it goes on. Um, Now, Arius' problem was that he had misread texts like the one that we are looking at now. And when he saw the beginning of the creation of God, he thought, Aha! Jesus is clearly a creation of God. He had a beginning. He is not equal or one with the Eternal Father. And in fairness, you can kind of see, but he was still wrong. And although this idea has been around for a very long time and has been thoroughly dismantled, you can still encounter it today. And this is one of the proof texts used by Arians to say that Jesus is not eternal because, here it is, he had a beginning. The difficulty with the Arian position is that it relies on a particular understanding of the Greek word that is used for beginning, that while it's possible, is not consistent with the many pictures of Christ as God that John gives us here in Revelation, never mind the rest of Scripture. So, there's actually no good reason for taking it that way. And please don't ever go there or misunderstand this text in this way. Whilst I may now have added to your fund of useless information about Arianism and what the beginning of the creation of God does not mean, well, I haven't gotten to what it does mean yet. So, what does it mean, Dave? To answer that, we're going to need to try and tie a few scriptures together. 
Where have we heard this phrase, faithful witness, before? Well, it's in Revelation 1.5. To the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, there are some important bits of information here that will help us to understand the meaning of this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God. So, we can see from this text that Jesus is clearly the faithful witness. That's what it says here. The faithful witness then is declared as the firstborn from the dead. Well, we know that, of course, because Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. He defeated it for those who will accept him as Lord of their lives. No more would the law condemn those who had failed it to eternal punishment and separation from God. This is not the old way, the old rules. It was a, a new thing. Now, where have we heard that word before? What does that remind us of? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So all this stuff fits together, doesn't it? The first of anything has to be the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the beginning of God's new creation. And so we now understand what we are reading here. It does not mean that Christ was a creation of God. And the creation spoken of here is not the creation of the world, but speaks of the great and wonderful salvation of all things that began with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So I hope that that makes some more sense now. And I also hope that it did for the Laodiceans because that was the whole point of Jesus identifying and introducing himself in this way. Reminding them of their need to take up their part in the new creation. Perhaps it reminds us of our need for the same. Let's begin to look at the Lord's accusations. I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now for the sake of order, most people have arranged their lives into a number of boxes. And we won't go into the male nothing box. When it comes to managing sin, there are generally three of them. There is a sin box for the bad stuff like lies and pointlessly shouting at people at roundabouts who don't use their indicators and can't hear you properly anyway. And then there's a good deeds box for having a quiet time regularly and popping that hundy into the offering bag. And then there is a mushy sort of third box for other stuff like haircuts and mowing the lawn. I mean, is mowing the lawn sinful? Maybe if you did it naked. Maybe not. So let's just stick that in the mushy box for now. The problem is that God does not see things in this way. Because for him, there are only two boxes. And they are labelled sin or holiness. There is no middle box at all. Not even the tiniest one. And this is where Laodicea had gone so wrong. They had chosen to put everything into a box that did not exist at all. And that cannot be without consequences. 
So in the same way that the angel in Ephesus is threatened with the removal of their lampstand from the throne room of heaven, the Lord here threatens to spit, literally vomit them out of his mouth. And that ought to give us some idea of how he feels about it. Friends, we are either for God or we are against him. It's that simple. He loves holiness, but he hates sin. I mean, he really, really, really hates it. It is detestable to him. And what we need to understand is that that grey, lukewarm box in the middle falls directly into the very same category. It's not neutral. It's not for God. Therefore, it is against him. If it is against him, he will not ignore it. He will act. He will crush it. He will enact a just punishment for it. Now in Laodicea they would have understood the unpalatable nature of being lukewarm very well. You see, apparently the city didn't have a reliable water supply and so they had arranged this aqueduct. They had to pipe water in from a hot spring several kilometres away. And although that was some distance, by the time the water got to them, it was still unpleasantly warm for drinking purposes. And we all know what warm water is supposed to do for you, yes? And moreover, what, of that, what is left of that aqueduct today can be seen to be heavily encrusted in lime. So, yum, warm, limey water. Trust me, Laodicea knew about lukewarm. And here's a further evidence of their pale and useless appearance. Earlier I mentioned to you that there was a very substantial Jewish community in the city, yet we see absolutely no evidence of persecution of the Christians here in the city. Now, just for interest's sake, I want to suggest to you that you try reading through the book of Acts and take note of the number of times that Peter and Paul have the most incredible amount of trouble with the Jews on their travels. And when you see that, you'll start to realise that having no persecution at all from a large Jewish community would be really unusual. And this gives us a strong indication that the church in Laodicea must have been very wishy-washy indeed, to have not attracted that kind of attention from the Jews who lived there. Clearly that middle box is never desirable for those who say that they follow Christ. Perhaps you have such a receptacle today. If so, I strongly recommend that you unpack it, recategorize the contents appropriately, and then send it off for recycling. It has no further use. If you look at this part of the letter closely, there is one phrase, that, one phrase that might stick out to you. It seems peculiar. The last part of verse 15. I could wish you were cold or hot. Now that's Jesus speaking. It's easy to understand why the Lord would want somebody to be hot, to be fully engaged and aligned with his will and purposes. But why would he want anyone to be cold? and therefore against him. Surely that stands in opposition to what we read in Second Timothy 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's kind of weird. I wish you were cold, but I want all men to come to be saved. I believe the answer is that if you are lukewarm, well, you're going neither way, neither up nor down, left or right. If you are hot, then your position is known and certain. 
Remember what Kilfane told us last week about the perseverance of the saints. God will not withdraw his salvation. But if you are cold, then at least there is, a, there is a chance that you will change your mind, that you will repent and follow Christ. And so this then is consistent with God's character because he always hopes and stands ready for that possibility, as we'll see in just a few verses. And this is why cold is so much more desirable to him than lukewarm. So let's carry on. I started off this morning by talking about self-reliance. And, and here it is declared out loud in verse 17. I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Laodicea felt very comfortable to be lukewarm because they were so wealthy by human standards. One of the other things that history tells us is that the city was completely destroyed by an earthquake in about AD 60. And because they were a Roman city, they were entitled for assistance when it came to rebuilding, much as the government here has helped out with the rebuilding of Christchurch. But they did not ask, because they did not need help. They had their own resources. And they rebuilt the city themselves, and they were proud of that. In fact, many of the rebuilt structures included the inscription, out of our own resources. Pride and circumstance has certainly not changed today, and this is why many commentators believe that this letter speaks particularly to modern Western model churches whose congregations enjoy a high standard living of land, who enjoy a high standard of living compared to many others. And we do in this church. Whatever your belief is about your present circumstances, I can assure you, having visited poor rural communities in Zimbabwe that we here in this building are certainly amongst the privileged few. None of us here live in a grass and mud hut with no electricity or carry water on our heads from a borehole many kilometres away from our homes. And so our ears then ought to be carefully inclined to what John has to say here because it is too easy to drift away from the truth when our bodies are warm our tummies are full and there are toys for us to play with. When Laodicea said that they were wealthy and had no need, they became like people on a path to a precipice who were not looking further forward than their feet. What do you think was going to happen? They could not see the mortal danger that lay ahead. It was spiritual things, not material things, that were supremely important. And so, in God's eyes, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. They were pitiable, in fact. So what was the remedy? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now all of these letters to the churches demonstrate very clever construction because there are always linkages between the city's economic activities and the spiritual message to the church there. It helps the people to understand what they're hearing. And here it's like this. Wealth in Laodicea was measured in gold. White garments are the opposite of the black wool that the place was famous for and it was also apparently known for an eye salve 
that was made by that medical school that was there. There is a curious word included here though. I counsel you to buy. Buy. Why does Christ use the word buy? Because after all, salvation is a free gift. And no human can offer anything of value to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So why this particular word? Well, I believe it's because the Laodiceans were so far from understanding the truth of spiritual matters that the only way to speak to them now was in commercial terms. Words they could understand like buy and sell and gold. And in reality there truly was a price to be paid in order to escape the shame of their poverty and blindness and nakedness, they would need to give up their reliance on material wealth, which for those who have come to rely on such things is a very high price indeed. And so the word buy is completely appropriate here for these people. Of course the things that they are told to buy here are symbolic, not real. Gold refined by fire is a biblical symbol for purity. White clothing to cover nakedness symbolises the same, although the purity suggested has mostly to do with not becoming stained by idols. And in the same vein, the association of shame and nakedness is common Old Testament language also related to participation in idolatry. Now why are we talking about idols here? Because they're funny looking things on a pole, aren't they? Hmm. Well, they can be. But idolatry just really means putting anything at all above God in terms of reverence. For instance, you may have an unhealthy compulsion to buy shoes, like my wife. And I can bravely say that because she's in London at the moment. (laughs) Here, of course, we have already seen how the Laodiceans have done this with money and also themselves for their stubborn self-reliance has caused them to forget that God is the provider and sustainer of everything. And therefore, accusations of idolatry and recommendations for its remedy are thoroughly deserved and needed. The failings of the church in Laodicea point to profound spiritual blindness. Otherwise, how could they fail to see the very obvious blessings of God that were delivered to them daily? let alone forget the larger and more precious gift of salvation. And once again here we see this clever association between John's letter and the things that the city was famous for. If you remember from earlier, an eye salve was one of the things that Laodicea exported. And here it is, recommended for spiritual blindness. Perhaps you shouldn't be wasting that stuff on others as the counsel. Use it on your own eyes so that you might see what is really important. Now, I want to hold it right here because it's possible by now that my explanation has become a little bit remote, a slightly too scholarly exposition of the scripture that's gone a bit long, something that happened somewhere else to someone else some thousand of years ago. So I want to try and take you on a little journey of imagination. Imagine that you are the church of Laodicea. Because it's a well-organised church, just like us, Baptist Church, you've had notice of an extraordinary general meeting for all members and adherents. It's been announced from the pulpit for two weeks. There's been notices in the broadsheet. Everybody's expecting it. 
Can you imagine the conversation that must be going on in those two weeks? Hmm? What's coming? Why do they want to have this meeting? So on the appointed day, everybody files in. They spend half an hour in worship and then they ask to sit down. And then the chief elder unrolls his scroll and he starts to read. Then he pauses. Now what have you just heard? Here you are, thinking that you have need of nothing. That you are the most wonderful church in the universe. And you have received this terrible condemnation from the Lord. Now let's just remember, this was late in the first century after Christ. So uh, there were still people around who remembered that folk had been struck down by the Lord for their disobedience. And there would have been a whole heap of people in that congregation who knew their Old Testament, their Torah, very well. And they knew that the Lord struck people down for disobedience. What is going to happen? God is angry with us. And then the elder begins to read again. Isn't this just the most amazing pointer to the love of our Lord? Isn't this just what he has done for us? We have failed him in so many, many ways. And we continue to do that. And yet, here's what he says. He loves us. That's why he chastens us. He gives us a chance to come back, be zealous and repent. He stands at the door and knocks. And folks, I want to tell you something about the Greek of that word knock. It's not like when you go to somebody's house and you, you, know, you arrive there and you can't see anybody around, but you know you've got to try, so you kind of go and you go, and then you wait two seconds and maybe if you're really keen you go, and then you go away. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm standing at the door and knocking is what it says. It's, Dave, come out. I can smell that you're in there. The Lord is knocking on the door of our hearts. He's asking us not to be self-reliant. He wants to come in and 
share a meal with us. He wants to share his throne with us. So we have to ask ourselves, have we fallen prey to the idolatry of self-reliance? Are we lukewarm in our faith? Well, if we are, then open the door. Listen to those knocks. Be zealous and repent. And the Lord will forgive you and dine with you. What a marvelous, undeserved privilege. We can only thank and praise Him for it. So, I'll leave you with that. Let us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we say thank you for reminding us of the enormous gift of your, your love and for your desire to be involved in our lives. And thank you really just isn't a big enough word because we know about holding grudges when somebody does something against us and we find it hard to understand how it is that we can do so much against you and yet you just come in. You knock on the door of our hearts. Thank you, Lord. I pray that with this reminder we would be inspired to turn our faces to you a whole lot more, not to rely on ourselves, but to put our hand in your hand and be blazing hot for the sake of the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.